from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm Stephen Winnick, folklorist at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. I'm here with John Fenn, the head of research and programs at the center. Hey folks, uh, today we have some special guests and a fun theme. You may have noticed on the Folklife Today blog a category of posts we call caught my eye or caught my ear. These are posts where a staff member talks about one or more collection items that caught their eye or their ear. Right, and for this episode of the podcast, we thought we'd get a fresh perspective by seeing what items caught the fancy of our current American Folklife Center interns. So we asked each of our two current interns to come up with a segment of the podcast, and those two segments make up this episode. I'll just note that we refer to the program informally as the Bardis Internship because it was generously funded by our late friend and colleague, Peter Bardis. We certainly miss Peter and are very grateful that we can bring such great interns to the American Folklife Center. And I'll add that this year our interns are on site with us, which was very exciting. Um, and our first guest is Brian Jenkins. Brian is a very recent PhD in the Communication, Culture, and Media Studies program at Howard University. His research explores how marginalized groups utilize the digital space as a tool to educate and empower one another. And his dissertation investigates black podcasts as a critical educational tool for black communities, while it also extends the tradition of black orality. So Brian is a podcast expert, and we have to say we're a little embarrassed to have him on our rudimentary podcast, but welcome, Brian. Thank you, and uh, this is far from rudimentary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, so Brian, tell us which collection or item caught your eye, so to speak. So in keeping with my interest in the digital realm, I became interested in the library's web archives, including the Web Cultures Web Archive. So for those not familiar, the Web Cultures Web Archive includes sites documenting the creation and sharing of emergent cultural traditions on the web. And to put that in more common language, it's an archive of websites where new forms of folklore are created. So what direction did you go in for your segment, Brian? I was interested in its development and importance of the Web Cultures Web Archive. So I decided to interview an AFC staff member about it, Alina Magoni. Great. Uh, let's dip into your interview. Why is the Web Cultures Web Archive important? Well, the Web Archive allows us to both paint a fuller picture of our own collections at the AFC and their use, but it also captures materials and stories that would otherwise be unavailable through other formats. For instance, Web Cultures can be written about, but only by actually capturing websites and their communities in real time can we do the work to represent, as accurately as possible, cultures that originate or now live online. This is also an important tool to capture otherwise ephemeral content, that might be lost for a myriad of reasons, such as a domain change or lack of institutional support or internal staff turnover, etc. These web captures help preserve a moment suspended in time as it was almost as if in amber. These aren't just screenshots or photos of a website, they're the actual website. And they include embedded content such as video players or audio when available, and other metadata which helps with provenance and may be useful to researchers in the future. This technical and historical context is invaluable and can help future users understand our society and history in innumerable ways. Thank you. So what are some of your favorite websites that have been captured? 
Well, for the AFC, we have both a web cultures collection and a new AFC collection for organizations with online presence related to the AFC's archive. So in our web cultures collection, I particularly love the sites Urban Dictionary, Know Your Meme, and Giphy. These are super helpful in real life when you're trying to figure out one, which current meme or slang or GIF is most important for a group chat. But they also are some of the best insights into our current state of society, like what we find funny. How do we communicate communicate with one another? And how do we let others know we understand them? And what values do we hold? I'm all aboard absurdist humor that's followed the pandemic. And you can see this evolution of humor and interpersonal engagement online if you look at the captures from these sites in such a short amount of time. And so how is this different or unique from our other collections, but also how is it similar? Well, these web archive collections are unique in that they're slightly more nimble and flexible from an acquisitions perspective. So when a major event occurs, like a social, historic, or political event, we can begin collecting almost immediately. Like, the library does have to ask a website owner's permission to both crawl the site and then make those crawls accessible, but permissions notwithstanding, this format of acquisition is essentially immediate. So if the website belongs to another government organization or nonprofit, we may not even need to wait for permissions like we do for creative works or private individual or institutional pages. So there are other layers to permissions requests, but that's just a simple explanation. As a note, we use the term crawl when our web harvester or our web crawler actually systematically goes through a website, downloading, indexing the website, its code, its linked content, etc. The resultant item is what we call a capture. These are archival copies of the web content and preserved in a standard format. So if we'd like to capture the work of a nonprofit on the ground during a major event, we can begin as soon as the web crawler is scheduled to. So we can have those captures in our own archive almost immediately. This work is similar to other collections and that our web archive collection actually needs to be part of and follow a collection development policy. So individual websites are nominated to specific collections following this guidance. This helps staff to think critically about which communities we're representing and what stories they are telling so that we can decide how best to preserve and present our history for future generations. This is much like our decision-making process for our other analog and digital content, where we take into account user needs both in the present and for years to come. So this archive is not an uh, AFC exclusive. So can you speak to the collaboration across across the Library of Congress to create and maintain this archive? Sure. Well, I've had the pleasure of working with departments across the library on quite a few web archive collections. But the two that stand out the most were, of course, the coronavirus web archive and the protest against racism web archive, which were both started in 2020. So when COVID-19 was first gaining traction and spreading across the globe and before the gravity of our new normal set in, people across the world were looking to the web for answers. Some people found it in humor, so dancing on social media, mimicking hand-washing, or sampling celebrities into sound bites and memes. If you remember a certain rapper yelling coronavirus, which became its own chart-climbing song. While others began blogging and documenting their thoughts on the virus and how to prevent it informally. We had issues capturing social media at the time for technical reasons, but as part of an international consortium, the library was still able to ensure our nominations were captured by partner institutions who work more with social media. We captured government websites domestically and internationally, and it really felt like racing against the clock to accurately and adequately nominate websites to tell this global story. 
Then, during the summer of 2020, after the protest across the nation began in response to George Floyd's murder, a small team across the library immediately began meeting for a special archive collection. This was a momentous cultural shift, and much of the organizing and documentation was online. We at the library decided to capture many organizational websites that responded to the protest, so we were careful not to impede on individual rights to privacy. We wouldn't want to host images of individuals in perpetuity who did not agree to have their images captured and hosted by a federal institution like the library. So we did want to represent the grassroots organizing and community engagement surrounding the protests, and we then chose organizations we thought were emblematic of the movement, such as Black Lives Matter, Mapping Police Violence, and WeCan'tBreathe.org. What are some of the benefits of collaborating with other divisions? Well, while the AFC does capture global cultures and folk life, whatever that may mean, we are also somewhat apart from other library divisions as we collect ethnographic materials. So working with other subject matter experts across the library, we can really tap into the wealth of their staff knowledge. Again, folk life is global and it can be anything. It can be web cultures, for instance, and it's really useful to talk to people who might know just a little bit more than I do about their respective countries and areas of expertise. All right. And so how would you like to see people engaging with these web archives in the future or or now, actually? Well, I think it's really important to know that the web is very closely linked to how we interact in the real world. And so I hope that they realize that documentation of websites can help further discovery and collaboration and social justice and change and movement. Um, What we're seeing with our collections is really how important online presence can be and how maybe a simple social media post can become something bigger, a movement, and that that can actually be part of the library's collection of the nation. So I hope that they just engage with it everywhere from looking at, you know, Giphy to really trying to understand how it is we came to be the society we are today. Right. Right. Thank you. So, uh, Alina, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. Um, this was great. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. And, and you're welcome. And thank you again for the conversation and congratulations on your internship this year. Thank you. So once again, that was Brian Jenkins interviewing Alina Magoni. So Brian, do you feel like you have a better understanding of the web culture's web archive now? Yes, sir, definitely. Uh, Alina was very informative and very helpful in in helping me frame uh, my mind around the web culture's archive and its importance to the AFC. What ideas does it stir up for you in terms of archiving digital folklore, especially coming out of your internship now? So there, there are a few things that that came to mind. Um, the first thing was thinking about archiving different uh, older hip hop blogs, and as a way to um, document and not only know you know hip hop culture and music, but also just American music and culture as a whole. And and, and that's a way that you can kind of watch the rise of different um, large international artists now, such as Kendrick Lamar or Drake, right from their introduction to now um but also in keeping up with podcasting it makes me wonder and think more about going forward especially as this is a, a much more prominent uh media space how does that factor in and there there mm-hmm. is included in the archive uh podcast and color 
website, which is an amazing website that that documents a lot of different uh, podcasts. Uh, Barry Sykes, the the creator, started it out of need in, in terms of documenting, connecting people with that. But also, how do we get the audio piece uh, mm-hmm. in there a little more in, in terms of and what's the best way to go about sort of documenting podcasts going forward? So these are some of the things that, that came to mind as I'm going through this archiving from my interview with Alina. Sounds great. Like you have some cool ideas for the future and things you can actually move on. So amazing work on this segment, Brian. And again, congratulations on earning your PhD and on your internship here at the American Folklife Center. Yeah, Brian, thanks for all your work on the projects, including this very podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an amazing time. Thank you. Now we are joined by our other current intern, Elisa Alfonso, and outside of her internship, Elisa is a doctoral candidate in ethnomusicology at the University of Texas at Austin and an incoming teaching fellow for musicology at East Carolina University. So welcome, Elisa. Thank you. So keeping to the idea of things that caught your eye or ear, what was it in our collections that jumped out at you? It's a Spanish-derived Latin American children's song called Senora Santana, Uh, which is in the Stetson Kennedy and Robert Cook WPA Florida Recordings Collection, recorded in Ivor, Florida, just outside of Tampa, uh, by Cuban-American Adelpha Poyato in 1939. Okay, let's hear it, and then you can tell us more about the song. Adelpha Poyato is going to sing another song, a children's song. What is the name of the song? Senora Santana. What is the song about, please? child that lost his apple and is crying for it, and somebody wants to give it another one, and he just doesn't want that one. He wants the one he lost. Where did you hear this song? I learned that song when I was a little kid. Where were you then? Where did you live? In West Florida. Go ahead and sing it for us, please. Señora Santana, ¿por qué llora el niño? Por una manzana que se le ha perdido. Yo le daré una, yo le daré dos, una para el niño y otra para vos. Yo no quiero una, yo no quiero dos, yo quiero la mía que se me perdió. So again, Señora Santana, a children's song which caught the ear of our intern, Elisa Alfonso. So Elisa, what was it that piqued your interest about that song? Well, about 23 years after Poyato's recording, this song was used again in a 1962 documentary called The Lost Apple in English, or La Manzana Perdida in Spanish. This was the first film made about the Cuban children's exodus that later became known as Operación Pedro Pan, or Operation Peter Pan in English. This children's exodus, the largest scale exodus of unaccompanied minors in the history of the Western Hemisphere, airlifted an estimated 14,048 children out of Cuba between 1960 and 1962, following Fidel Castro's rise to power. With the use of the song in that documentary, Senora Santana was solidified as the anthem for a generation of quote-unquote lost children who never came home. Yeah, complex history and just a fascinating story, Um, but what is the story behind the song? Why would they choose that song in particular? Well, the song itself has a longer history, probably tracing back to Spain and the colonial era, but the story told in the lyrics translates to this. Mrs. Santana, or Santa Ana, why is the boy crying? 
Well, he's crying for an apple that he's lost. I'll give you one, I'll give you two, one for him and one for you. But the little boy responds, I don't want one, I don't want two, I want the one that I lost. The apple in the song became symbolic for a lot of things lost for the panis. A homeland, a way of life, a community, family, relationships, and sometimes even language. Upon arrival to the U.S., many panis received replacements for these things, new foster families or group homes, English as a secondary language, but most of them yearn for what they lost in Cuba. Many understandably still do some 60 years later. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection. But um, you mentioned that the song comes up in other parts of Latin America too, right? So are there differences between Cuban versions of the song and versions that you find from elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. Actually, uh, there are not only different words and melodies associated with this song, but some of its lyrics actually end up in other Latin American children's songs. So Poyato's version uh, we listened to earlier represents the most well-known Cuban or Cuban-American version, but in other versions in Central America and Latin America at large, the boy never responds in the song. The listener might just assume that the boy's happy with his replacement apple and the story ends there. There's actually another song in our collections that is under a different name, but has the same story within it. A Spanish Californian woman named Lottie Espinosa sang a song telling the story of the boy and his lost apple called Lo 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 Tata, which in another recording she calls Dormi Nino or Duerme Nino. What's fascinating about this recording is it, it was actually done in the exact same year as Poyatos, but on the other side of the country in California. All right, let's take a listen.
Now, those of you who might be listening and were expecting the popular Spanish language lullaby Duermete mi niño or something similar to Señora Santana were probably a little confused. Despite the name, the song does not actually sound a lot like the tune Duermete mi niño, though it does have traces of that lullaby. No, according to the folklorist who recorded uh, Miss Espinosa, the song was, quote, sung by Indian mothers in the servants' quarters of California ranchos as they pulled rhythmically at the rope which swung their babies to sleep and hammocks slung over the parents' bed. Well, I've never heard of a similar tactic being employed while singing Señora Santana. You'll notice in this lullaby that the same story of a boy crying for lost apple resurfaces. The lyrics are, Señora Santana, Señora San Jose, ¿Por qué llora el niño por una manzana que se le ha perdido? Vais hasta la huerta y cortese dos, una para el niño y otra para vos. Duérmete, niñito, etc., etc. Um, but as we said before, in this version, we don't actually know how the boy reacted to getting a new apple. He's just told to go to sleep. Yeah, that's some really interesting context for the song, too, that we have in that collection. Um, but do you know of even more versions of this song? Yes. In fact, the more you look for them, the more they turn up. I've seen references to versions from Argentina, Chile, Puerto Rico, several Central American countries, and of course, Mexico. In AFC collections, I know that John A. Lomax recorded several versions in Texas, also actually in 1939. In his field notes... Um, he called the song a, quote, lullaby widely sung by Mexicans in South Texas, end quote. And like the version from Lottie Espinosa, in Lomax's version, we also don't know how the boy reacts to the offer of a new apple. All right, let's hear one of those recordings as well. Señora Santana, por qué llora el niño por una So, Elisa, what do these other versions tell us about the song? Well, one interesting thing that I noticed was that some of the versions in AFC collections combine verses from what we usually think of as different songs, like Señora Santana and Dormite Mi Niño, and several other lullabies. Lottie Espinosa does that, and so do some of the Lomax versions. And that's a great observation, and I'll say that as one of our resident song nerds, I can attest that it's a common feature of lyric folk songs. And by lyric songs, we mean songs intended to express or affect emotions rather than to tell a linear story. 
and many work songs like sea shanties and lullabies fit into this category. So in most lyric song traditions, including the English language and Spanish language tr traditions, there are just a few preferred verse forms, so many songs are expressed in the same meter. And since these songs don't tell a linear story, but rather convey a feeling, most any verse can fit into any singer's version of a song as long as it conveys a similar feeling and is expressed in the same meter as the other verses. Since all lullabies are meant to convey feelings of calm and sleepiness, singers can put together their versions of lullabies out of a large store of possible verses, so for scholars it's sometimes difficult to decide which song to say anything is a version of. And we saw this with the Lati Espinosa version, which Cowell just called Dormite Nino, but which has verses conventionally identified with at least three songs. So scholars often refer to this phenomenon as floating verses. So you've noticed something going on there that is much more widespread than just this song and more widespread than the Spanish language tradition. So it's very cool. Yeah, so a fun discovery, Elisa, just by careful <laughs> listening. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you ran into this one. Um, what else does comparing these versions tell you about them? Well, to my knowledge, the earlier recordings of the version where the little boy rejects the apple or apples actually comes up more in Cuban exile communities. The Poyato recording of Senora Santana being the only one of AFC's five versions to have this detail certainly would suggest as much, as would the recording done for the 1962 documentary about Cuba's exiled children, which, coincidentally, was also recorded in Florida. So, are you suggesting that this part of the song might have been added by Cuban exiles living in Florida? It's hard to say, but there are many published versions I haven't seen yet. But given what I know right now, that's certainly a possibility. There was actually a good amount of Cuban migrants in the U.S. before Castro assumed power in 1959. Many of them left Cuba to pursue economic and political stability during the years leading up to, during, and after the Spanish-American War, so it would not be surprising that this children's song, like so many other songs for children, uh, was actually reflecting the sentiments and worries of adults at the time. But regardless of how the verse about the boy's reaction got added, the symbolism of the lost apple has continued to be associated with the Pedro Pan children specifically, with the aforementioned documentary histories and academic articles on the exodus all involving the lost apple from the song Senora Santana. That's fantastic, Elisa. And now all that's left is for us to thank both you and Brian for your wonderful work during your internship and especially on this podcast. Yes, it's really been a pleasure working with you, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was our pleasure. You've been a great guest. So thanks to our great interns and to our guest, Alina Migoni, and also thanks to our engineer, John Gold, and to Mike Turpin for the use of the studio. And of course, thanks to you, John. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to the collectors and singers we featured in this episode and all of our colleagues around the library who help us create and distribute this podcast. And as a special thanks to our listeners, let's allow Olga Acevedo to sing us out with her 1939 Texas version of Senora Santa Ana. See you next time. Señora Santana, ¿por qué llora el niño por una manzana que se le ha perdido? Duérmase, mi niño, duérmase prontito, porque ahí viene el viejo y le da un sustito. Señora Santana, ¿por qué llora el niño por una manzana que se le ha perdido? Duérmase mi niño, duérmase prontito, porque ahí viene 
Cristo. Señora Santana, ¿por qué llora el niño por una manzana que se le ha perdido? Duérmase, mi niño, duérmase prontito, porque ahí viene el viejo y le da un sustito. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.